trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join us in our daily journey deep into the heart of wrong think. It's a necessity, though. I mean, we live in a time where there is so much so much manipulated information being beamed at us around the clock that if you are not willing to engage in wrong think, have, I don't know a nice way to put this. Essentially, you're going to become like a like a cow with a ring through its nose, just being led here and there by the people who do this for a living. I mean, professional manipulators, far better than I am, far bigger audiences, far better funded and and very, very skilled at what they do. I guess the essential thing I'm pointing out here is it's never been more important to think clearly and independently for yourself. That's what this program is all about. I have great sponsors who help to make this possible. In fact, if you look at my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you'll find a complete list of each of my sponsors as well as links to connect you with them. In short, they include Dixie Chiropractic, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. So I have to confess something I did over the weekend, and, and I'm still not quite sure how to interpret this. Um, I'll, look, I'll, I'll admit that uh, just looking at the, the news and just some of the different developments, a couple of things that had come up over the weekend, um, was a, a federal judge uh, overturning a previous court's decision that set aside the Biden jab mandates and saying, no, 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 that was the wrong jurisdiction. These things can go forward. And I thought, my goodness, they're not giving up. <laughs> they're just not the people who want to push that jab on everybody are just not going to give up. And and so I was just kind of feeling the weight of everything, global conflict, economic troubles, all of it. And I thought, you know, I need to adjust my thinking here. I, I'm, I'm starting to get weighed down by the negative, and I don't like to find myself there. So I posted on Facebook. I just said, hey, I need to lift my spirits a bit. Share with me something that is going well in your life so I can be happy for and with you. And, uh, man, first of all, the people who shared things that, that were going well in their lives Thank you for doing so. And there was a lot to be very grateful about and and appreciative of. It was surprising how many of those responses involve family. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere, but you know, with with everything that's going on, that was that was one of the places where obviously a lot of people were finding happiness no matter what, maybe, you know, staring us in the face. But this is the part that kind of surprised me and, and I'm a little bit concerned about it too, because I don't know if it says more about me or just about the state of the world. I had a number of people, I mean, a surprising number of people reach out to me personally and just say, hey, are you okay? Are you doing all right? And on the one hand, I, you know, my first instinct is, look, I'm going to ascribe the noblest of intentions to this and just think that there are, there are good people out there who really are looking out for the, the others in their lives. And I'm not going to lie, it touches my heart. That, that there are people who would, would just take the time to reach out and say, are you doing okay? But this concern kind of popped up in my brain. And, and, and I'm not sure which way to go on this, so you know, I'm, I welcome any input you can provide for this. But 
is is it that clear? Am I losing it? I mean, am, am I getting too weepy in the course of uh, you know a commentary? I don't know. I don't know if it's just if 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 I was putting off the vibe that uh you know I'm hanging on by my fingernails and um because some of them were seriously like hey hey just you know don't forget you are a child of God which I I appreciate that reminder and I need that reminder often because that really does keep me grounded but it concerned me whether or not um, I don't know if the perception is that uh, maybe I'm just that close to the edge or or I'm I'm looking frayed around the edges or if that's just kind of the state of the world right now I'm kind of leaning toward the latter but I'm I'm open to all interpretations and I'm not too proud to say you know it, it could be it could be that uh, that I'm I'm starting to to bend under the pressure I don't know but thanks again to everybody who shared something that was going right in your life. And uh, my friend Kurt Mercadante had a very solid uh, suggestion. He said, you know, Brian, maybe what you need to do is sit down and write out all the things that are great about today and then what you're going to do to make it greater. Now, Kurt's that kind of guy. If I need positivity, that's the, I look in his direction because he is he's one of the best of the best. But I guess what I'm sharing this with you just for, for, well, for two reasons, actually. Number one, the pressure that we're feeling and the the sense of urgency and the sense of of gravity that that is just a part of life right now, it's real. And and, and I think everybody can feel the pressure. It's like, you know, the the ceiling is getting lower and lower and and we're, we're starting to really feel that. Be aware of this and the people around you. If someone is out of sorts, or if someone really is, you know, uh, hanging on by their fingernails, try to be perceptive of that. And and I mean that in the sense of maybe they just need a little bit of encouragement. Maybe they are, you know, <clears throat> to the point of, you know, getting themselves into a, a very dark state of mind. But also, I think we need to be aware, of, uh, you know, on our own part. And take regular breaks from, from social media, take regular breaks from regular media, I still want to be aware of what's going on. Don't want to miss a thing, but at the same time, a lot of what's going on, I mean, come on, the the, the atrocities coming out of, of Ukraine, and I'm not denying that they are taking place. I think they are. I just don't buy the narrative, this is all Russia. This is all, you know, <clears throat> Putin's handiwork and, and nobody else. People are doing very ugly things to each other on a very large scale. And that's, by the way, that's far from the only place in the world where this kind of stuff is happening. This just happens to be where all of the official attention, or at least the main attention of the media outlets, is focused at this time. And I would just remind you, these are the same people. These same media outlets are the ones who incessantly were focusing on, you know, oh, COVID, look how terrible it is. Look, all of our statistics are in blood red to show you just how terrible and serious it is and why you shouldn't question anything that we're telling you. You know, that's misinformation. That's killing grandma. That's You get the picture. I think you need to remain very skeptical of any official narrative that is being beamed in your way. Um, be selective about the ones that you do choose to to access. But I'm going to offer <clears throat> one more unsolicited suggestion here. If, for instance, I'm just going to use the example of food prices. If you are looking around and going, man, this worries me. I'm hearing talk about famine. I'm hearing talk about global food shortages and things like that. And that one's scary because that one hits all of us. I don't care who you are. If you're, you know, as long as you're processing oxygen, you got to eat. 
And the thought of, uh, you know, of a time where food is going to be scarce or maybe even not to be found and people will be suffering and starving, that is very daunting. That's only supposed to happen in biblical stories, and it's not supposed to happen to us in this modern world where everything is so connected and we can just order it online or just trundle on down to the store and get whatever we need. I think back to the very early days of the COVID lockdowns, which two years ago we were in the thick of it. And the most effective counter to the fear that so many people were feeling at that time was in reaching out to the people around you. And I mean in your immediate vicinity. In my case, it was in in our neighborhood. Just reaching out to the homes on all sides of us and asking one another, is there something that you need? Is there anything that you guys are in need of? Now, I had one neighbor who, uh, before the, the lockdowns, before everybody kind of went nuts and you know, cleared off the store shelves, uh, they, they had not had a chance to, to buy meat. They didn't have a chance to really stock up and have, you know, protein in their freezer. And so we fortunately had some extra, and we were, like, more than happy to, to share that with them. Um, some neighbors needed diapers for their kids. And so we were keeping an eye out. If, if somebody went to the store and they saw, oh, look, there is diapers, and in, in, in the, they do have diapers in this size, we would grab it for them. And likewise, another neighbor said, hey, we got this great deal on bananas and uh, like a whole case of them. They're, they're ripening quickly, but we're, we want to share with anybody who needs them. Do you see the point, though? We were looking out for each other. And I know that, you know, when, when times are tough, when the crud's going to hit the fan, you know, people talk about uh, you need the three Bs, beans, bullets, and Band-Aids, or whatever it may be. There's another B in there that I think we're forgetting about. And forgive me for how sexist this sounds, but it's your bros. <laughs> your neighbors, whether they be male, female, or even something in between, they're your bros. Or at least they should be your bros. So if you want to lessen the fear in your life, this is my suggestion. It's worth exactly what you paid for it. Focus on building those relationships with the people closest to you and spend a little bit of time looking out for each other. And that doesn't mean doting on one another and hovering anxiously like a helicopter parent, but just being aware. Hey, is there something that uh, we can do to help you guys? Is there something you're looking for? All I can tell you is I've put this in practice myself, and it's astonishing how the fear level drops in your life. Because you're not focused on the fear. You're focused about helping other people. I'm sure there's some eternal principle behind this, but I just know it really does make you feel better. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for the sponsors who help to make this program possible. What they do is they enable me to spend my day, to spend my waking hours, finding good, solid, credible, timely information that I can then share with you. And it keeps the wolves away from my door. It means I don't have to go get a part-time job at the gas station, although I'm, I'm willing to do that if that's what it takes. They make it possible for me to, to do what I do and to, to put my energies into to where, uh, where I feel like they're being best used. I hope that makes sense. Among those, uh, among those wonderful sponsors, Dixie Chiropractic, that's Dr. Ward Wagner. And if you live in southern Utah, and especially if you are dealing with uh, bulging, herniated disc in your back, 
Okay, you know what it's like to have to work with pain. If you're dealing with neuropathy, how about this? If you've been in a car accident and are dealing with some of the pain and injuries that can come from that, I'd like you to get in touch with Dixie Chiropractic. Now, their website is DixieChiro.com. I do have a link in my show notes. There's a couple of specials, though, that I want to bring to your attention, especially for those dealing with bulging herniated discs. I want you to scope out the $99 intro special. That's two treatments plus a massage. You can just get in touch with the Dixie Chiropractic Office for details. Or, if you're dealing with neuropathy, the $99 Calmera treatment plus massage. Go to DixieChiro.com. Please let them know that their message reached your ears via this program. Well, sometimes it seems like each election cycle is just a scheme to replace one bad set of rulers with another bad set of rulers. And Jeff Deist has a great essay on the uh, Mises website, Mises.org, that outlines the problems with the wrong elites and why they need to be desanctified. He starts by talking about a panel discussion at a recent Mises Institute event in which a presenter described her son's Ivy League university as elite. Now, this was even as she was lamenting some of the perverse and harmful COVID mandates imposed by its administration. And Jeff Deist says, those mandates, by the way, were overwhelmingly supported both by students at this particular college as well as their parents. And to this, another panelist responded, you know, we need new elites to applause from the audience. Now, Jeff Deist says, look, that's painfully true. We desperately need new and better elites because the politically connected class in America spent the last hundred years plus ruining education, medicine, diplomacy, by which he means peace, money, banking, big business, literature, art, and entertainment, just for starters. And yet they have the temerity to attack the inevitable populist reactions to their own dismal failures. Well, he says the first step in this process is withdrawing our sanction of existing elites whenever and wherever we can. Now, this could be as easy as turning off CNN or as difficult as not sending a child off to seek the fading prestige of an, a- of an IV degree. But he says we have to turn our backs on them. We have to upend the incentives and institutions that make their undeserved elite status possible. Now, undeserved in this context means state-connected. And I think he's dead on by, by pointing this out. This feature more than any other marks today's unnatural elites, by which we mean elites who owe their status largely to government connections rather than actual merit. Now, this can be hard to identify in some cases. Some elites, like Jeff Bezos, perform brilliantly in the marketplace, yet also maintain deep ties to the worst of the American superstate. Amazon sells cloud services to a host of criminal federal agencies, Bezos himself solely owns the CIA organ, the Washington Post. Russian oligarchs, much in the news these days, are said to fall in this category of unnatural and undeserving elitists. Now, while the dictionary definition of oligarch is straightforward, that is, a member of a controlling elite with nearly absolute political power, the current usage is a little bit broader. It's come to mean foreign billionaire who made money in unholy ways. And as such, it presumably applies to Vladimir Putin and his purported billions in assets amassed on a modest salary. But many Russians obtained power and wealth through close connections to the former Soviet Union, buying up state assets on the cheap during the cronyists, the cronyist early 1990s. Now he asks, are they all to have their property seized now? Like Roman Abramovich and his shares of the Chelsea Football Club in London? And he asks, what law justifies this? What tribunal issues such an order? And what police agency enforces the seizure? 
These trifling questions about the rule of law go unasked and unanswered. Why, we're at war with Putin. But aren't U.S. elites oligarchs too? Jeff Deist says when we consider the nexus of state and corporate power, we find plenty of American examples beyond the aforementioned Bezos. New York University professor Michael Rechtenwald coined the term governmentalities to describe publicly traded companies like Google and Amazon that are so intimately connected with the federal state as to become deputized as their state agents. When we consider how far-reaching this nexus really is, how many American elites truly deserve their status? Consider Elon Musk, who recently sold part of his Tesla stock and purchased a 9% interest in Twitter, gaining a board board seat in the process. By the way, Twitter has actually said he declined to take that board seat. I don't know what the story is behind that, but um, some of the things that uh, Musk was tweeting over the weekend, you know, hey, maybe we should turn Twitter's San Francisco headquarters into a uh, homeless shelter since nobody shows up for work anyway. Oof. So they say they're still glad for his input. We're glad he's our largest shareholder, but I think they pulled some procedural maneuverings and a background check to make sure he's really good enough to be one of us. And Musk, for whatever reason, says, you know what? I don't want to sit on your board. That can't be good for Twitter, but moving on. Now, Musk's wealth derives in part from his clearly meritorious efforts building and selling PayPal, his business acumen in investing the PayPal proceeds, and his visionary, indefatigable efforts in building both Tesla and the private SpaceX. Now, surely a man of his intelligence and entrepreneurial drive is a natural, worthy elite? Now, Jeff D says, maybe. At least some of his Tesla stock is wealth is due to government subsidies. It's a good point helping to create a market for his electrical vehicles and SpaceX contracts directly with NASA. Now, perhaps Mr. Musk didn't ask for these subsidies and would be quite wealthy and successful without them, but they still cloud the issue. And are the Obamas oligarchs? After all, their reported $70 million net worth derives entirely from trading on their time in the White House. How about George W. Bush and his $40 million, given how he inherited money and then sold his oil and gas concern to a company owned by George Soros? Consider Joe Biden, whose net worth soared from less than $30,000 in 2009 to nearly $10 million today. He literally has not had a proper job since 1970. Surely he is an oligarch in the sense of unearned wealth and power. What about Stacey Abrams, the one-time Georgia gubernatorial candidate who claimed a net worth of $109,000 in 2018, but now discloses a net worth of $3.17 million? What has she built or created? Is she an oligarch with unearned wealth and status due solely to politics? How about CNN's Anderson Cooper, born into the bosom of Vanderbilt wealth and elite schools, not to mention his obligatory intern stint at the CIA, and then given a prominent platform on a major cable station? Is he in any way deserving of his status? So the point here is Russian oligarchs, American politicians, and state-connected billionaires are all cut from this same cloth. They didn't earn or fully earn their wealth and position in society. But Jeff Deist says we have to expect this. Rule by, by elites, at least to an extent, is indeed inevitable. Every society across time and across space manifests this. Across place, rather, manifests this. Sorry, got ahead of myself. Democracy doesn't solve or change it, but it merely transfers status away from merit and toward politics. Democracy simply creates different or worse elites in the form of a permanent managerial bureaucratic class that no more reflects the consent of the governed than Putin represents the will of all Russians. 
He says, what we need to do is not eliminate elites, but to create better ones. Government is mostly beyond hope of redemption, says Jeff Deist. We don't need elites for governance. Markets perform that function far better and also far more democratically. He says, our focus should be on the institutions of civil society or the intermediary institutions of civil society. Saving those that can be saved, building new ones where the damage is too great. And he says, we begin this process with the real elites, the actual adults in the room. We desperately need to desanctify the current crop and replace them with just better and nobler people. Amen. There's a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Now, as I talk about Patriot Home Mortgage and in particular Heather's team, I want you to understand whether you live in the state of Utah, whether you live in Idaho, if you are in the market for a home loan from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, she's the one you need to talk to. Heather has decades in the business. She understands very clearly the ins and outs of what lenders and borrowers need. And she has a company with the clout to help you get the loan you need in a timely fashion. Which, uh, given the current uh, competitive nature of the real estate market, this matters more than we know. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I kind of want to build on the, uh, you know, getting getting the old elites or the bad elites out of power and uh, and looking towards uh, better people. I, I almost want to hesitate. I hesitate to use the word elites, but I think it's possible for there to be good elites. And I'm talking about people who are just good because of their merits and the fact that they win, they are living their lives as good people. They didn't have to resort to state force to secure, you know, the the wealth or status that they have. Unfortunately, we've been trained, and you can see this at any political rally, you know, when the politicians come in, there are people who get googly-eyed. Oh, I want to touch his hand. I want to touch her, the hem of her garment. They just, they, they are so wrapped up in politics. So I want to springboard from that into a just knockout punch of an article from Joaquin Book. This also is from the Mises.org website. If you vote, you have no right to complain. I know some people are going to recoil from that like they just got slapped. What, what, what do you mean? <laughs> it's all I've always heard that if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. But hey, more and more, I'm, I'm of the mindset of, hey, if things are going terribly wrong, don't look at me. I'm not the one who put these idiots in office. Unless you want to use some kind of you know contorted mental gymnastics to try and explain how me not voting for that person actually is the reason that they're in office. Nonetheless, let's let's dive into his article. He starts with a quote from Jason Brennan from Against Democracy. Most citizens are not doing us any favor by, by voting. Asking everyone to vote is like asking everyone to litter. Now, Joaquin Book says, look, the title is not a typo. I oppose, or he says, I mean the opposite of the quip many people use after elections. If you don't vote, you have no right to complain. 
He says the romantic view of democratic government is the idea that we all come together, display our values and give our say. And through the miracles of aggregation, we receive a responsible government that somehow reflects those values. And well, for the next four years, we can happily spend our time or and for the next four years, we can happily spend our time on what really matters in life while our appointed representatives carefully and competently steward our shared public goods in the best interest of our nation. Now, he says, if you didn't sneer while reading that previous paragraph, you have either never participated in a democracy or you are in for a brutal brutal shock, rather, once you lift your nose from the fairy tale like view. One most astute critic of democracy, Jason Brennan, opens his book Against Democracy by summarizing how his view differs from most others. Quote, Many of my colleagues entertain a somewhat romantic view of politics. Politics brings us together, educates and civilizes us, and makes us civic friends. I see politics as doing the opposite. It pulls us apart, stultifies and corrupts us, and makes us civic enemies. End quote. So Joaquin Book says the promise of the big promise of democracy and universal suffrage is that you, yes, you can make things better if you just get your buttocks off the couch, inform yourself and go vote. In every election cycle, we're told it's so important to get out the vote, which is weird because in many states in America's electoral system, it's completely pointless to vote. And because why in the world would a candidate say go vote unless they meant go vote for me? The overlooked flip side of America's democracy promise is that you, yes, you, might make things worse. For what do you know about tax rates or environmental legislation or how to structure health care or infrastructure needs or what ought to be taught in public schools? How could you possibly have any reasonable grasp of military procurement or how much the government ought to spend money on X? Well, he says at least that last one does have a reasonable answer. The answer is zero. He says, I always find it peculiar that those in love with democracy are always so excited and serious in the months leading up to an important election and always so disappointed afterward their candidate didn't win and now they must reconcile that consequence with their own clearly mistaken worldview the people didn't want what we were selling how odd in fact he says three common reactions are the opposition stole the election it was russia's fault okay well the russia story in america or britain in 2016 never made much sense he says It was a convenient scapegoat for those who couldn't rectify their devotion for democracy with the terrifying outcomes it had just delivered. For for well-educated coastal elites, it was much easier in 2021 to ridicule the evil Trumpers for pursuing this avenue in the January 6th attacks, even though the shoe had been on the other foot in 2016 and in 2000. Democracy is about hurling crap at your opponent while conveniently forgetting that you yourself are full of it. Secondly, He says there's the reaction of we need more education to get the message out. Well, clearly our campaign slogans weren't good enough or our candidates didn't resonate with the electorate. Or there's some ignorance or misunderstanding among the voting public because they, like all good and honest people, share our conviction of what's important. It couldn't possibly be that many others disagree with our assessment of the world, the values we espouse, or the obvious policies we say we wish to pursue. Ouch. That's a harsh little bit of reality. Here's the third reaction. I hate my fellow countrymen. How could they be so stupid? Don't they understand that Trump slash Hillary slash Corbyn slash Johnson slash Macron slash Le Pen is so incompetent and dangerous and dumb and that a good society, trademark, requires my candidate to progress? 
Now, he says, what's interesting about all these reactions is that they betray the foundational premise of democracy, the aggregation of the public's will into one whole. The basic idea of democracy is that we put our values in a black box and we go with the majority's candidate. Now, that implies, of course, that there will be dissenters and minorities, and the system requires them to subject themselves to the rule of that majority. If you really supported democracy, you'd be equally thrilled, regardless of which side wins. But Joaquin Book says, I've yet to see such a logically consistent person, which tells me that democracy-loving campaigners' devotion to democracy is faux, and their desire to rule over others is everything. And this all comes to mind as Viktor Orban, the longest-serving European head of state and the poster child for populism and illiberal democracy, once again conquered his political opponents in a landslide election in Hungary. For every erudite, well-educated, right-thinking person inside and outside of that central European country, it's a blow to their view of the world, a cognitive dissonance waiting to unravel. Western media calls uh, Western news media calls the victory crushing and a landslide, which one would think should be celebrated as good news by all the world's Democrats. A clear mandate from the people with voting turnout at record highs, the opposite of a vote of no confidence. But of course, nobody sees it that way. Pointing to all the ways in which Orban and his corrupt cronies have undermined democratic institutions, stacked the courts, and picked fights with supranational corporations, and gerrymandered their constituents for maximum influence. The losers complained that the winners spread hate and lies. Does that ring a bell for any other democracies closer to home? The prime objection thus becomes that Hungary isn't a real democracy, an objection that's particularly ironic in a former communist country that has long regarded airy dreams of the Soviet, Soviet Union wasn't real communism as an insult to their collective history. He says, on the contrary, this is the most real instantiation of democracy one can imagine. Popular characters spewing vitriol at their opponents, rallying masses against imaginary enemies, foreign and domestic, and saying things that aren't true. Again, he says, tell me which democracies aren't doing things like that. The difference between Hungary's disastrous democracy and those of its troubled Western counterparts is merely one of degrees in the fact that we have a massive blindside to the American, English, or Scandinavian version of similar shortcomings. He says, all democracies trend the Hungarian way sooner or later as democracy is a system that selects for stupidity and cruelty. The worst get on top, the logic of interventionism grows the state's intrusion larger and larger, and freedoms get devoured. So yes, Joaquin Book says democracy is the delusion that everyone can live at the expense of everyone else. But the larger problem for those genuinely supporting democracy is to hold two contradictory principles at once. Your own view of what's good policy and what is the best candidate and your superseding belief that democratic voting makes for the best governance. So he says when your preferred candidates lose to truly despicable types, it takes a very strong conviction and spine to be the one who says... Well, my country wants it, so that's all okay. He says, terrible things happen when democracy dies. I agree, but terrible things happen too while democracy lives. If you truly think democracy is the best of all possible systems, participating in it, i.e. voting, should settle the difference. The people have spoken. The miracle of aggregation has worked its magic. How then can you complain about the outcomes? That's a pretty good red pill right there in written form. I've got a link to it in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you would like to subscribe to my show notes, it's a very simple matter of going to those show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click the subscribe link at the bottom of the page. Give me your email address. I'll drop a copy of them in your email inbox every single day that I do the show. Also, I will direct you to great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com. I think you should just click the link and let yourself uh, start to browse and see. Look, there are big options. I mean, if you want to go big, you want to purchase a year's supply for four people, you can do it. It's there. The stocks are, the supplies rather, are in stock and and it's available. Or if you need to start with something smaller, you know, a, a one-month supply for one person or even just a grab-and-go package, lifesavingfood.com has all of these things. And look, I don't know, you know, how these supplies are going to pan out. I think as more and more people become aware of some of the strains on the food supply system, not just here at home, but globally, you're going to see a, a run on this kind of uh, resource in the pretty near future, the time to act is when people are still relatively unpanicked and still thinking pretty rationally, and most importantly, while those stocks are still available. So click on it, get some peace of mind, lifesavingfood.com. All right, let's talk about uh, two quick things here. I want to talk about uh, the Covidians and the coin shortage. This is an article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. You've probably seen the coins as you've been in stores. They're all over the country. Please use exact change. We face a coin shortage. Now, that problem goes back two years now, and it's only getting worse. And he says you can count this as among the collateral damage of the COVID response, but it's one that hits the working poor particularly hard. And what he means by this is nearly a quarter of Americans are either unbanked or underbanked. They need change not only for daily spending, but also for things like laundry machines and many other uses. Also, small businesses depend on cash payments, so they're very high. They're allergic, rather, to the high fees of financial intermediaries. Probably don't think about that a lot, but it's just not easy for everybody to immediately go to contactless payment systems. As with so much in the pandemic response, this is a point that was completely forgotten. Every disease panic comes with irrational fears, the germs that people can't see, that they imagine to be everywhere, toilet seats, doorknobs, escalator rails, armrests, salt and pepper shakers, you name it. People start imagining the bad thing is everywhere and always to be avoided. And thanks mostly to media frenzy and poor public health messaging, anything touching anything else was presumed to be infected. Menus disappeared and were replaced with QR codes. If you absolutely had to touch something like a pen... The only safe way was to have two boxes, one with used pens and one with sanitized pens. Now, famously, people would quarantine mail or groceries or baggage, letting them air out so that the COVID sludge that was on them would surely die. And historians, he says, will marvel at the insanity. And the root problem here traces to three assumptions that were wildly wrong. Number one, that COVID adhered to surfaces for days and that this was a main driver of transmission. Number two... Anyone and everyone could avoid COVID by doing the right thing. So if you caught it, it was your fault. And number three, there's no possible immunity benefit from infection and recovery. And under those assumptions, all fed by public health officials, a whole population went nearly mad. Thus was the use of physical money presumed to be dangerously disease spreading. Those coins and bills surely have COVID. You shouldn't touch them. 
I think I may have actually suggested back in the early part of the lockdowns, send me your, your paper money for proper disposal. I really wish more people would have taken me up on that. So the bottom line, though, is the normal pattern of coin circulation was drastically disrupted. And there is currently an overall inadequate amount of coins in the economy. The Federal Reserve continues to work with the U.S. Mint and others in the industry to keep coins circulating. Something that they are not willing to look at is private money. And Jeffrey Tucker goes into some great background on this. I'm not going to go into the the full details here. One thing he asks is, hey, what could happen? What could we do to solve this coin shortage? Well, he points out in the 18th century, that was a problem in Britain. Coins were the only money around. The crown only minted large denominations suitable for lords and merchants, but the workers needed to get paid too. So what happened? Well, private enterprise got involved. As George Selgin has thoroughly documented, button factories got to work retooling their manufacturing to make private money in a variety of forms, if only to serve the cause of local enterprise. And it worked. The results were beautiful and effective. Of course, the government cracked down and renationalized coinage again. But he asked, what if anything can be done today? And Nicholas Anthony makes this suggestion. The solution could be as simple as sanctioning private coins on the condition that acceptance is not mandatory and some minimal capital requirements back the coins. Such a sanction would welcome back the innovations that occurred during past coin shortages and solve the crisis in a way that keeps the coins flowing for users who have no alternative. Now, of course, this is not currently legal. Like so much of life today, there are severe restrictions and penalties associated with private coinage. If governments would get out of the way in this area, as with so much else, Jeffrey Tucker says there would be solutions to these problems that were generated by the worst series of policy decisions in our lifetimes and for many generations before. Again, there's a link in the article, or a link rather to this article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Okay, I want to shift gears. When is the best time to get ready for adversity? The answer is now, if you aren't already, you know, getting prepared for it. Now, Paul Rosenberg had a great essay on this from a few years ago. And he says, mind you, I'm not pessimistic about the future. He says, I'm optimistic. Once we get through the present transition and presuming the world doesn't descend into deep darkness, human life will massively improve and our descendants will look back at our time as the dark ages. But he says, all in all, things are going fairly well for us at the moment. Now, keep in mind, this was written in 2013. The decade of government worship is falling behind us. The Internet remains. The NSA has been exposed as a criminal hacker collective. Bitcoin has burst onto the scene. Sure, there are the usual petty squabbles and distractions, but he says the younger crowd is learning to ignore them and to keep moving forward. But adversity is coming. He says in situations like this, it always does. Forks off the main cultural line, which is what we are are accompanied by problems from without and problems from within. And he says, we've all seen libertarian movements and projects that shot themselves in the foot. Well, for whatever reasons, that's just part of the current landscape. We're going to see more of it. We've had attacks from the outside also. And while the state is generally declining in its potency, they still have millions of employees who are willing to authorize and or use violence on their behalf. So how do you prepare for adversity? This is where I think he has some really key suggestions. Learn to take the blows. Now he's saying there will be blows and they will hurt. I wish I could assure you that all will be sweetness and light, but I'd be lying. The first big blow is rough because it leaves you questioning what you really believed. It may even leave you afraid for your own reputation or even for your safety. 
Probably the deepest issue is shame, a dread of people ridiculing you and casting you out. But Paul Rosenberg says, I'm sorry that these things are so painful. None of them will be as bad as the first big blow. But we live in a screwed up world at the moment, and these things happen. Such things also happen to people who hide in the corner, obsessing over every rule and assuring their rulers that they love them. The difference is that they are given crowds to hide in, where you and I stand by ourselves. So, you've taken that first big blow. What then? Well, he says, then you're left with a choice. What to do next? You'll have to make your own choices, of course, but he says, you know, I didn't start caring about liberty because I was hoping to get rich out of it or find the easiest path through life. I was interested in it because it was good and true. I wanted to learn and to grow. So if liberty is the better way, then what else is there for us to do? Shall we try to forget everything we learned and recondition ourselves to passive state worship? Shall we go back to believing lies and repeating vapid slogans for the rest of our lives? Could we? Really? Paul Rosenberg says, we are building a better world person by person, piece by piece. What else is there for us to do? Should we deny our own minds because people think we're weird? Should we disregard the value of lives because people are terrified of ideas that lack an official stamp? He says, liberty requires you to value yourself. Shall we pretend that this is a bad thing? Huge numbers of people are sure that leaving the approved path will call down punishment upon them. They're terrified of being different and doubly terrified of being different and better. So bad new ideas may bother them, but when a clearly better new idea comes along, they fall into an existential panic. Listen to this next line. Jesus wasn't killed for being a bad man, after all. He was killed for being better. In the end, this is about living and thriving. Everything else is merely a means to that end. We've chosen life, and if we occasionally suffer for it, the only real alternative is to walk away from ourselves. In fact, he leaves us with a quote from Helen Keller. Quote, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Ooh. I don't know why, but that... that that one gives me goosebumps. So, if you value yourself, and I assume you do, or you wouldn't be listening to a radical extremist program such as this one, stand up, be counted, know that you are not alone, be willing to take that hit and keep moving forward. It's worth it in the end. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Welcome to our merry band of wrong thinkers. People who are happy to question the narrative, to live life on their own terms, yes, to even suffer for their beliefs. And I think that suffering is hardest when you feel like you're alone. If nothing else, I hope that this, pro- this program gives you the reassurance that you are not alone. There are others who see things as you do and who are as anxious to find truth as you are and willing to suffer right alongside you. Not because we enjoy suffering. We're not masochists. 
but we understand that in the end, the truth is worth it. And I still believe the adage of, you know, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I think it's the only way forward. Got some great sponsors who make this program possible, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, GovernYourCrypto.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. All right, I'm going to get a little bit metaphysical for the first part of this hour. And this is not so much because I feel like you didn't get enough in your Sunday school lesson yesterday, but I... I think sometimes it's really hard to keep perspective about all the different conflicts going on around us, and, and sometimes it just seems overwhelming. Does it not seem like like the darkness is gathering in so many ways? I won't belabor the point, but look at, uh, look at the move and the pressure right now to introduce children to uh, very hyper-sexualized identities and ideas at the youngest possible age, and look at the anger. And the outrage that's generated when people are told, hey, that's grooming. You should not be grooming kids, whether it's to become, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, sexualized identity or just simply grooming them to become little Marxist radicals. It's wrong when someone presumes to step in and subvert the authority of parents and subvert particularly the moral authority of parents to train their children as to the standards of right and wrong. And we're seeing this on a very large scale right now. And it's, it's so funny to see the, the just legitimate, uh, I shouldn't say legitimate, the uh, authentic anger <laughs> that is being shown by people who are told, I don't want you to talk to my kid, my five-year-old, about sex. <gasps> well, then I'll just quit my job. What kind of a person would get so outraged about something like that? What, what makes it so important? that you have to have those kinds of conversations with kids. Again, at such a young and tender age. It seems overwhelming. And yet this, as well as so many of the other conflicts that we see taking place all around the globe, are based in a war that we almost never hear about. And I'm talking about a spiritual war that has always existed. So this is the point where, you know, if religion is not your thing, you you may want to get past this segment and, and it's, it may not be for you. That's okay. Anthony J. de Blasi, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says an old hymn that religious progressives deleted from their hymnals was Onward Christian Soldiers. The war it called upon was not against other nations, as in the left campaigns for regime change, but against spiritual principalities of evil that wage war on humanity. In the language of the Christian faithful, the fight was against Satan. Now, the spiritual fight against evil referred to has no date or political origin and is ongoing. But he says, before I go on, here are some background notes. When God was swept aside for strictly political action against evil, as in France in 1789 and later in England and then in Russia in 1917, finally in America after the World Wars, this alarmed not only those who sang the old hymns in church and who today are called conservative, but the faithful and morally principled of every religious orientation. Expressed in the supernatural terminology common to Christian laymen, Satan invaded the West, including its churches. It was, in other words, apparent that Christianity had been assaulted in a major way by the very forces of evil against humanity that people have fought since the beginning of time. It was Christianity that civilized Europe and taught people how to propagate goodwill and well-being from the ground up and from the top down of the social order. 
a requisite of human life that today's media-certified good guys seem ready to demolish. It could be said in the same biblical language cited above that a church vacated by God was occupied by the devil, who, according to many a theologian, even made it to the Vatican. Now, what is relevant in any language, he says, is that retreat from the church's teachings on reforming the self is good news only for Christians in name only, and others who've been ignoring God consciously or not. The folks who've always taken sacred scripture seriously, I mean, how else is holy scripture to be taken, continue to rebel against the inevitable decay of civil order and the emergence of evil in our midst. With the rise of fake Christians and religiously indifferent Jews, what surprise is it that today's weak Judeo-Christianity justifies the times instead of guiding them? Following the times instead of leading them is a 180-degree reversal of the mission to promote goodwill and well-being among people. He says the wholesale retreat from religious, spiritual, and uh, from the wholesale religious and spiritual side of the USA has left a big hole in its defense against the evil of major mistakes and consequences. And in falsely claiming the high moral ground this nation has helped spread, this in falsely claiming the high moral ground this nation has helped spread weakness throughout the world. And a predictable result is the rise of aggressive leaders who exult in playing God and convincing themselves and others that the salvation of the world depends on their actions. Enter ideas like the New World Order or the Great Reset and other plans for a global oligarchy that lack moral perspective, without which we the people, well, don't count. Whoever has noticed this lack of regard for people, even in the top ranks of government, has been looking at the same face of evil that was once condemned by the Vatican and by pastors and churches where soldiers of Christ assembled. Moving in step with politicos and celebs who are quick to name the good guys and the bad guys in our country is not being a smart American. Many of our finger-pointing leaders ought to indeed be facing the mirror and examining their consciences as, as never before. As if, you know, in fact, if they ever have at any point. It might clear their minds. It might help them consider rejoining the humanity they are obviously out of step with. And it might also stay the impulse to engage in kinetic war, not of defense, but offense, which history has proved costly, senseless, destructive, and deadly. Encouraging and promoting major conflict, regardless of human cost, denies our spiritual heritage and is in no sense being a good guy. Those in high office who deserve that distinction, the courageous and conscientious in government who respect laws higher than any made in Congress, are treated like the bad guys and kept away from decisive action. In the final analysis, he says, uh, it's, it, it matters not whether one views what is unfolding in the world as the end times or the last battle between good and evil or any other apocalyptic culmination of world history over which it's generally assumed that mere human beings can have no impact. Such suicidal fatalism has no place in any theology or philosophy, but what does matter is choosing to line up against the wanton destruction of human life for whatever cause and facing down zealots who would deny people their lives and livelihoods for a so-called better world. How far we have drifted from In God We Trust, the official motto of the United States, and the acceptance of the ultimate shield against leaders who turn their backs on God and wage war on humanity. Can they not see that in doing so they have inadvertently started a war against themselves? 
In the past, spiritual warfare was fought in churches and articulated in verse and musical refrains inspired by the giver of life. Today it is dramatically visible throughout the world in the great swell of human protest against tyranny that is turning heads and waking everyone up. Again, this is an article by Anthony J. de Blasi from AmericanThinker.com. And look, I'm sorry, I I feel like I'm moralizing here, and maybe maybe I'm out of my lane for doing so, but... I really believe that what we are seeing in this this push for hypersexualization of children and the normalization of every form of deviancy up to and including, I assume, that they will eventually get around to trying to normalize pedophilia. I think that this is just more evidence or another front on that uh, war between good and evil, that spiritual war that's been going on since long before any of us ever arrived on the scene. I mean, I just, I I don't want to to rub anybody's nose in it here, but I seem to recall Jesus talking about, you know, it, it would be better to have a millstone hanged around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea than to offend these little ones, meaning the children. And when someone is just strongly advocating for, yes, we need to we need to get these kids away from their parents' beliefs and away from their parents' teachings of right and wrong and sexualize them and introduce them to this deviancy and normalize it in their lives. You know, call me the church lady if you want, but that sounds very satanic to me. That sounds like exactly what I would expect a being of darkness to want to do to try to undermine the happiness of humanity. And it's astonishing how openly it's playing out right in front of our eyes. And yet we have many people who are concerned, well, let's not be too harsh and let's not, you know, be impolite about it. Can you politely tell somebody to get the hints? I'm just asking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Going to take a moment here to thank the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, for being one of my sponsors. I've had this conversation with uh, Eric. He is uh, he is uh, married to uh, Teresa. They are the owners of Sewing and Quilting Center. And we were trying to figure what's the best way to, to tell people that it's a great idea to having, have a sewing machine, particularly in, in terms of self-reliance. And one of the things Eric pointed out is, is I don't think you really want to say, you know, it's a great doomsday device. You know, it's good, something to have, you know, for, for doomsday. But, you know, the more I think about it, as far as essential tools that could make a world of difference if things were to get very difficult. And I'm thinking Great Depression, difficult, or even worse, having the ability to make your own clothing, to repair the clothing that you have, would certainly give you options, in a time where, you know, clothing conceivably could become extremely expensive or just difficult to come by through the traditional routes that we've gone. When you start seeing, you know, Deseret Industries and Goodwill getting picked over, you know, for clothing and the shelves empty there, you're going to know that uh, times have truly gotten tough. Well, Sewing and Quilting Center can not only sell you the machines, they can sell you all the supplies that go along with it, they can train you how to use that machine. To me, that sounds like a, a no-lose proposition. You can't lose. You'll come away better prepared. You'll have a valuable skill. And best of all, it's backed by people who know how to service what they sell. Even the machines they don't sell, they can still service them and fix them. 
I don't know. It just seems to make sense. If tough times were coming, I think uh, having a sewing machine would be definitely one of the tools I would put up near the top of the list just to make sure that we still have, you know, clothes to wear and options when clothing starts to get worn. You can click on the link I provide in the show notes. It'll take you right to them. All right, let's talk about the screw tape letters. One of my favorite sources of clarity and timeless truths is the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. Got a great article here from M.B. Matthews. This was from AmericanThinker.com. Screw tape comes to America. I want to share this with you just because there are some insights here that really are timeless, keeping in mind that these were written back in 1942. He says, C.S. Lewis's satirical screw tape letters is probably the best literary work of its kind in describing how evil and the devil take root undetected in the life of human beings. Our tendency is to think of evil as overt, obvious, and easily discerned. We believe we are smart enough to spot it, but Lewis rightly warns us that we are not. In this classic primer, Uncle Screwtape, a senior devil, writes a series of letters to his nephew Wormwood, a junior apprentice tempter, discipling him on how to surreptitiously tempt a Christian man, the patient, away from God. It's a revelatory tour de force by Lewis, who admitted it gave him no pleasure to write Screwtape. The book was supposed to be light satire, but it's actually deadly serious and is treated as such by literary critics and Christians worldwide. In America, evil is often overlooked because it does not come in a red velvet bodysuit, tail, and horns. Still, everywhere... Evil everywhere is mistaken for being good. For example, this is a quote from Lewis. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping them out. Turn their gaze away from him, meaning God, toward themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings there by the action of their own wills. End quote. Now, M.B. Matthews says, Many are so self-absorbed that there is no room for God or anything else. In fact, our culture is set up to deliberately turn attention away from God inward toward one's own feelings. America's TikTok culture reflects this perfectly. Here's the scary part. Lewis wrote his preface to screw tape letters, in his preface to screw tape letters, the following to describe where evil is conceived. Quote, the greatest evil is now not is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It's not even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in the clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Holy cow, that is on target. M.B. Matthews says the greatest evil for America is incubated by the globalist one-world black rockers in places like Davos. The CDC, World Economic Forum, and European Union have not escaped contamination either. We are mistakenly looking for evil in the discernible and the conspicuous, but it is being clandestinely hatched undetected in slick private jets and plush private offices. Screwtape cautions Wormwood not to be obvious, but rather to hide his ominous intentions from the patient, and instead to take a veiled, clandestine approach. Quote, Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. End quote. 
let people believe that nothing is really happening. Or if it is happening, it's not really important. M.B. Matthews says, few thought it was alarming when baby steps were taken decades ago to legislate reparations in America. We said this will never go anywhere. We're now saying the identical thing while reparations are being implemented under our noses and other names, critical race theory, diversity, equity, inclusion, no bail arrests, and unprosecuted shoplifting sprees. Screwtape gives Wormwood the following advice regarding the patient, quote, Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. Above all, do not attempt to use science, I mean the real sciences, as a defense against Christianity. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't see and touch. There have been sad cases among the modern physicists. If he must dabble in science, keep him on economics and sociology. Don't let him get away from that invaluable real life. End quote. Now, M.B. Matthews says, there is the more a culture believes only in what is provable through science, the less likely its members are to see truth in transcendence because the trail might possibly lead to God. The sad cases refers to many scientists, particularly uh, those physicists who inadvertently have been led to God precisely and surprisingly through their scientific endeavors. The ordinariness of things like single-celled animals, finding marine fossils high in the mountains, or gazing at distant galaxies, often lead many a hard scientist to the sublime and the transcendent. That's a huge loss for secular humanism. M.B. Matthews says the left emphasizes follow the science because science is their God. Such a mindset squirms uncomfortably that we're made in God's image. This nervous intransigence gives rise to the wanton killing of babies in utero and out. After all, babies are not made in God's image because God does not exist. But M.B. Matthews says God does exist. And foul forces far more experienced than Wormwood are everywhere tempting humans without being detected. A furious screw tape, Wormwood and other evils are at this moment hounding Americans away from what is good and godly toward that which is profane, angry, and vindictive. We remain unaware of Screwtape's nihilistic, perverse plans at our peril. Now, I, w- I didn't share this with you with the intent of, uh, see, now this is why you better be in church on Sunday and, you know, possibly a Bible study on Wednesday here because you know, this is what you really need. But I, I'm going to suggest that this is a resource which is often overlooked because we are kept so hyper-focused on politics. And I understand, you know, for, for most talk-driven, you know, like talk radio shows and even, even you know, spoken word podcasts, politics is a fascinating thing. And it has lots of drama, a lot of melodrama, in fact, and, and uh, you know, interesting personalities and titillating facts that come up. But because of what I have been allowed to see and experience in the last few years, and uh, I'll probably be spending some time a little bit later this week talking a, a little bit about the experience I had at Bundy Ranch about eight years ago. I am convinced that uh, God really is in the details. And I'll even go so far as to say that uh, I think the solution that we are looking for, if it's going to be a legit solution, at some level has to include that uh, firm reliance on divine providence, just as the founding generation did in their moment of need. I'll leave it at that for now. You can check out a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. HSLAmmo.com is one of my sponsors. Located in St. George, Utah, but uh, man, Spencer takes care of people all over the place. I was actually visiting him uh, a little over a year ago. A guy drove down from Montana. I mean, this guy drove like 17 hours, you know, to, to get down there and, uh, and to, to purchase his ammo from Spencer Worthington. Why would he go that far out of his way? Maybe it wasn't 17. Maybe it was 17 hours round. Anyway, the guy was driving long, long distances, but he wanted to do business with Spencer and with HSL Ammo, and it was purely on the reputation that Spencer is a good, honest man who creates a very high-quality product, and this guy would settle for no less. I was impressed. I mean, I was impressed before that, but that to me was just a testament to, man, you know, when, when you are known by reputation, particularly if you've taken the time to really build a good reputation with people, that is worth a lot. So if you're in the market for some ammo, or if you just want to, you know, rub shoulders with a, with a truly great person, maybe you should get a hold of Spencer. I've got a link to his website in my show notes. If you're lucky enough to live in southern Utah, you could probably run into him around town or maybe even out at the range. Tell him I said hi. Well, I don't know if you caught this. Uh, the news media isn't talking much about it. They're, they're, they're a little bit concerned, but you remember the, the kidnapping case or the alleged kidnapping case where a bunch of militia members were going to get together and kidnap the governor of Michigan, hold trial, and then uh, leave her afloat in a boat out in the middle of Lake Michigan or something like this, you know, because of her um, horrendous COVID policies? Do you remember this? Yes, anti-government extremism at its absolute worst. Well, have you heard how that case has fallen apart like a soup sandwich? It's just so interesting. And it looks like uh, as far as, uh, you know, securing convictions, not so. Not so. In fact, uh, two of the people, I believe, have been acquitted and the jury is deadlocked, meaning there's going to be a mistrial on the other two. I want to share with you uh, some thoughts from Roger Kimball. Justice has been and will be a long time coming. This is from American Greatness. And um, as long as you're on the American Greatness website, you ought to check out Julie Kelly. She is absolutely one of the best resources for following this case. Subtitle here, or at least the, the, the lead here, no movement without recognized legitimacy can last. That's the good news. But the bad news is that not lasting can describe a lengthy and turbulent time. Roger Kimball says on Friday, on Friday, April 8th, The biggest domestic news came from Grand Rapids, Michigan. On that day, the world learned that a jury had voted unanimously to acquit Daniel Harris and Brandon Caserta of conspiring to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer in the fall of 2020. The verdict, as Julie Kelly noted in her column for American Greatness that day, was a huge defeat for the U.S. Department of Justice. He says, one can only hope. It was also a huge, if tardy and incomplete win for justice, lowercase, no department of, preceding the noun. Kelly recounts the sordid details of this saga of FBI entrapment, deep state political maneuvering, and media malpractice. 
The case made national headlines and coming when it did, just before the 2020 presidential election, was clearly designed to affect public sentiment regarding the Donald Trump campaign. Heavens help us, troglodytic Trump supporters are trying to kidnap noble Democratic public servants. Can you believe it? It turns out you would have had to have been foolish to believe it. But in retrospect, it seems clear that it was sort of a dry run for that later entertainment, the January 6th, worse than Pearl Harbor or 9-11, civil war-like insurrection and or attempt to overturn the election and overthrow our democracy at the U.S. Capitol. Roger Kimball says there were some two dozen people involved in the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer Sagma. Fully 12 of those two dozen people were FBI assets. They were not there to infiltrate the loser militia members. They were there to egg them on. The FBI helped to define and finance the plot from the beginning. They even set up a fake militia for the others to rally around. They also helped to equip, not to mention bribe, the motley crew whom they assembled for the caper. Now, the FBI did not uncover a plot. They were the prime movers in fomenting a plot. And they did so much, did not so much uncover evidence against the plotters as they entrapped them. And it's not as if this is a one-off. It's part of a pattern of abuse and irresponsibility. As the Wall Street Journal's Holman Jenkins put it, last fall, the agency should be scrapped and something new built to replace it. I'm not sure why we need to replace that, but hey, you know, I'd settle for the scrapping part. Roger Kimball says, we don't yet know the full extent of government involvement in the July, in the January 6th jamboree, but I would not be surprised at all to learn that it was premeditated, extensive, and criminal. Scores of people have been moldering in the Washington, D.C. jail that the columnist John Zimerick calls Gitmo on the Potomac, most of them for trespassing or obstructing an official proceeding, or the most common offense, parading at the Capitol. Julie Kelly's been on the case, too, in her book, January 6, How Democrats Used the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right, goes a long way in connecting the dots. Now, he says, perhaps the tide is beginning to turn in that case as well. Last week, Matthew Martin became the first of the January 6th defendants to be acquitted. He faced a spate of misdemeanor charges. Video evidence shows he had been waved into the Capitol by a smiling police officer. He spent roughly 10 minutes looking around and then left. Not exactly revolutionary behavior. Nevertheless, he was arrested and jailed before being released on personal recognizance. Perhaps his acquittal will bode well for the many other political prisoners who've been charged with the same things Martin was. The fates of Matthew Martin, Daniel Harris, and Brandon Caserta are in one sense heartening. I mean, it shows that justice is still possible in the American system, eventually. All three were arrested on what now seems like dubious grounds. Justice prevailed, but only after major injustices had been perpetrated. And I just have to do this quick aside here. This is what happened with the Bundy family. Starting eight years ago, same kind of thing. Big, overblown federal provocation, hoping to tempt the Bundys or one of their supporters into doing something terribly illegal. And it took a long time for the truth to come out, and a lot of good people sat in prison for two years waiting for trial. But in the end, it turned out it was government that had the egg on their face, not the Bundys or their supporters. Roger Kimball says, We do not yet know how either of these events are going to be absorbed by public sentiment. 
He says, I suspect that the Gretchen Whitmer caper will just whimper its way into oblivion. It will leave a few smudges on the reputation of the FBI, but probably will not have any lasting effect. Now, the ultimate reception of January 6th, though, that's harder to predict. The regime closed ranks in its immediate aftermath, loudly insisting, one, that it was the most serious assault on our democracy in living memory, and two, that anyone who disagreed was a conspiracy theorist at best and a domestic extremist or domestic terrorist at worst. Now, he says, it's my sense that attitude, that that attitude has been slowly dissolving as more and more evidence to the contrary comes to light. But it's still not clear how far alternative points of view will be afforded or accorded, rather, the credence they deserve. The pressure to maintain the regime narrative has been ferocious. The terrorist attacks of 9-11 emboldened the state to increase its surveillance technology and clandestine operations against the baddies. That apparatus is still in place. And perhaps it's justified, but the relevant point is that all those tools, the monitoring of telephone calls, social media, bank accounts, etc., to say nothing of the dawn raids and other kinetic interventions, have been turned against the American people. Well, it's been turned against a portion of the American people. Doubtless the exact definition of the portion is malleable. Today's protected class might well become tomorrow's enemy of the state, and vice versa, though enrollment as an enemy is much easier and much more frequent than movement in the other direction. That's how totalitarian movements work, after all. Arbitrariness is of the essence. Nevertheless, he says, it's clear at the moment the primary enemy is anyone associated with MAGA populism. The definition of who belongs in that suspect class is ever-shifting. I mean, a few months ago, parents who objected to local school boards endorsing the imperatives of BLM or this week's uh, version of sexual exoticism were on the suspect list. You remember that? The FBI, the, the Attorney General of the U.S. calling down the entire police power of the state to identify and ferret out threats and hate speech directed against school boards by parents angry at efforts to corrupt their children. Now, the publicity surrounding that imbroglio and the success of Glenn Youngkin in making it the prime issue in his successful bid to become the governor of Virginia pushed the ill-begotten initiative into the shadows. But its very existence shows how far the radicalized state is willing to go. Roger Kimball says, I think we're on sort of a crossroads. The acquittals of Messrs. Uh, uh, Martin, Harris, and Caserta shine a light on one road out of the, out of the crossing. The activities of the deep state and its media publicity arm describe another, less sanguine path. The state, as Joe Biden memorably put it, has all the F-15s and nukes. But the other side has the vast majority of people. No movement without recognized legitimacy can last. That's the good news. The bad news is that not lasting can describe a lengthy and turbulent time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I can't tell you how grateful I am to have you as a member of my audience. Just because I know you have so many choices. And there ain't a day that goes by where I'm not sitting here thinking about uh, how I need to use better English than saying ain't, but no. Actually, that I don't spend time thinking about how can I best serve you? What can I do to provide you with good, credible, quality information? And, and I appreciate the feedback that I get from listeners like you. 
I encourage you, go to my show notes page. If you would, subscribe. Feel free to uh, reach out. Send me articles if you find something that's interesting or you think is noteworthy. Very happy to share those things. But most of all, I just want you to know I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to share these things with you. And hopefully it's something that provides a little bit of uh, depth and clarity to uh, your life as well as who you are and what you stand for. You know, right now, Disney's getting a lot of publicity. Some of it favorable, a lot of it is not. Some of the best memes I've seen lately, actually, are are focused at Disney. What was the one I saw? Oh, it was it was a spinoff of It. You know, the, the Stephen King story, the movie, the little kid looking down into the storm gutter, only instead of Pennywise the Clown, why, it's Mickey Mouse down there. And Mickey Mouse says, we're all gay down here. I'm sorry. It's there's some there's some great meme work at at work here and I'm sure Disney's not happy about it. But hey, you know? If you if you lie down with dogs, you're going to get fleas. So let's we'll move on from here. Thomas Knapp has a great article that delves into Beauty and the Culture War Beast. And and this one I thought was pretty interesting because he talks about uh, how a boycott is better than a boycott. Check this out. He says, on April 6th, hundreds of protesters convened outside the Walt Disney Company's headquarters in Burbank, California. Their message, boycott Disney. Now, Disney's having a moment at the center of the latest culture war dust-up with the allied forces of Donald Trump's Make America Great Again base and the old religious right arrayed against an equally motley crew of something they call the radical woke left. He says, under pressure from the latter, Disney spoke out against Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Bill. A bit of fentanyl-laced red marketing meat tested on the, former, the former's support base there, now spreading to other states. Disney's entertainment uh, general entertainment content president, Carrie Burke, followed that up with a stated intention to boost the presence and centrality of queer characters in Disney productions. Saying, quote, We have many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories, and yet we don't have enough leads and narratives about in which gay characters just get to be characters, not have to be about gay stories. Right-wing response, Avengers, assemble! Now, it seems that the American right has already forgotten and is about to relearn a lesson it's only recently given to what passes for an American left. It's easier to implement and sustain a boycott than a boycott. And he has a legitimate point here. So, I mean, look, there's on, on the surface, I'm like, hey, I don't know if I agree with this. But when he points out, when Chick-fil-A came under attack for donating money to, uh, to anti-LGBTQIA causes, its revenues didn't fall. In fact, they soared to new records as Chick-fil-A became religious conservatives' fast food chain of preference. Now, all they were doing was actually donating support to the defense of marriage. But... Okay, the Chick-fil-A boycott, boycott scenario had clearly drawn lines. You avoided it because you supported same-sex marriage or you patronized it. He says to own the libs, but I don't think everybody was motivated by that. With Disney, the lines aren't nearly as clear. Disney is, an easy, to, is easy to boycott but hard to boycott. Why? Because Disney owns and makes a lot of stuff. Not all of which is obviously Disney branded. Let us count the ways. Walt Disney Pictures and Walt Disney Animation Studios, Pixar, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, 20th Century Studios and 20th Century Animation, Searchlight Pictures, the ABC Television Network, the Disney Channel, Freeform, FX, National Geographic, A&E, ESPN, Hulu. Then there are its theme parks, hotels, and cruise line. So if you consume entertainment content, 
you are almost certainly consuming Disney content whether you notice you're doing so or not. Boycotting Disney is as easy as continuing to do what you're probably already doing. Boycotting Disney? Well, he says, that's significant and probably unpleasant work. How many sports ball fans even notice that Disney owns ESPN? How many of them are going to give up watching their favorite team's games over it? The answer is probably not many. The proposed Disney boycott is essentially old yeller, except that few will likely known or mortis, notice or mourn rather when it's put down. And frankly, he says, I'd be happy to see all of these culture war battles end that way. I do believe that voting with your wallet is a legitimate way to withdraw consent from things with which you don't agree. And I'm just, as far as Disney goes, you know, as far as look at all that entertainment, all these different ways to be entertained. I know I'm going to be unpopular for suggesting this, but if you have leisure time, by which I mean time in which you are not actively working to provide a roof over your head and food on the table and clothes on your backs, that extra time that you have could be spent in more productive pursuits than simply being entertained. I'm not saying entertainment is evil or bad or that, you know, you should avoid it at all costs. I'm just saying there's almost an unhealthy emphasis that's placed on it. So maybe some prioritization would be in order. Um, I learned this a long time ago, and I'm not the best at applying it sometimes. I like to sit back and just, you know, watch reruns of The Office or whatever. I, I like to be entertained as well. But if you are serious about living as a free individual... One of the things you're going to have to do is become the kind of individual who qualifies for freedom, which means you've got to be a thinking, reasoning, aware person. That means that some of your leisure time should be spent in bettering your understanding of the principles and practices of liberty, of of who you are, of what your foundations are in life. I know that doesn't sound nearly as much fun as, hey, let's put on the game and crack some brewskis. Woo! <laughs> I totally understand the, you know, ease dictates in how we want to use our leisure time. But I also understand that there is an inseparable connection between people who are serious about knowing and understanding for themselves and those who are living on what I guess I would call borrowed light. I don't think you can be a truly free person. I was going to use another word. I was going to use the word liber. That used to mean that was the distinction between the slave class and the, the people who were the actual citizens of, you know, ancient Greece or ancient Rome. The liber knew how to read. They knew how to do math. They knew how to contract. They knew how to engage in commerce. Whereas uh, the slave class knew none of those things. But you have to be informed. You have to be capable of thinking. And and what I'm about to suggest is not nearly as exciting as sitting down in your man cave and flipping on an action movie or watching another, you know, a great game or something like that with your buds. But if you aren't exposing yourselves to what the great minds who came before you have to offer, you're missing a really great opportunity. If you're not reading books that are actually above your head, that require serious thought in order to comprehend them, you're missing a great opportunity. And, and, you know, here's the kicker. Many of those who came before us had their blind spots. I've mentioned before Aristotle, 
said, hey, slavery, that's just a natural thing. Some people are born to be slaves and some people are born to be masters. He did not see a problem with it. But that doesn't mean that everything else he thought was automatically wrong. Of course, you'll only know this if you actually read some of his incredible works. You'll find that uh, this, this was a guy who really gave some serious thought. And there are so many others. But I get it. You know, we, we're all busy, we're tired, we're stressed out. I just want something that's just relaxing, gives me a chance to veg. Something that I'm trying to do more, and at least put into action more, is instead of uh, just sitting in front of the, the television, when, things are, when, when I have a lull in the action, and I'm just like, all right, <laughs> I'm ready for a break. Whenever possible, I try to go outside. I try to be in direct sunlight, get the vitamin D and get the fresh air and also to be in motion and to be aware of what's happening around me in nature. Now, this is, this is what works for me, but it really helps me to recalibrate my antenna and to be um, more present in the moment and less stuck in my head. I don't know if that even makes sense, but if you've ever found yourself in that situation where you're just Stuck in your head and you're feeling like, man, i got to do something different. I'm, I'm not liking this, this feeling of, of being just trapped in place. I guess what I'm suggesting in so many words is turn off the media. Unplug from the screens, even for a little bit. Go be around people. You want to really do something noble? You, know, you don't have to just read hard books. You can, you can go find some way to help somebody. See what you can do to use your influence to help another person, whether it's through encouragement, I don't know, cleaning up their yard, changing a tire, whatever it may be. The opportunities are there, but a break from the screens and a break from the media, it's very healthy to do this on a regular basis. This is The Brian Hyde Show.